Welcome back to What You Alone. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Dr. John D. Martini, who is a human behavior expert. He's read thousands and thousands of books, gets interviewed all the time. He travels around the world in a boat, just going from city to city, lives truly an extraordinary life. I mean, he's hardcore in his personal development stuff. Uh, and his whole thing is to really make everybody out there really kind of reach their potential for whatever they may that might be for everybody out there. Yes, he's all about you finding your values and aligning yourself with those values to, as you say, Matt, achieve your potential. He's written over 40 books. He's read over 30,000 books. He's been teaching for 46 years, sharing things like his, his signature event is the Breakthrough Experience. And it's all about this general personal development stuff to really build yourself up to achieve whatever you need to achieve in life. So, big Dr. John D. Martini, he, uh, he has some good answers to a lot of our questions. We went a bit of red zone, kind of shadow kind of questions, which uh, if people listen to Robert Green, which is something we're trying to do more in episodes this year. Yeah, I think we injected a few devil's advocate questions about what you what skeptical people might be thinking about the whole personal development in- industry. And I think he had some great answers to those devil's advocate questions. Well, I don't think... I've ever met anybody that probably could not do more. I have a very busy schedule, and I, I start. I, I, I learned that if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it tends to fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. Oh, yeah. And if you don't fill it with things that are meaningful, it fills up with meaningless. So I don't know of anybody I've met that I've done a consulting for or interactions with that couldn't possibly or probably do a little bit more prioritization. So probably people can get more out of their day by making sure they're doing the absolute most priority thing. Some people major in minors and minor in majors, and they're doing low priority things and not delegating enough. But with delegation, you can get a lot done because I can't get, I, I couldn't do everything that gets done if I had to do it all myself. And it would be uninspiring to have to do some of the things that need to be done. So I stick to research, write, travel, teach. Everything else is delegated. I don't drive. I don't cook. I don't do anything else. It's all just structured for me. And um, I'm the one that set the priorities. I have people that make sure those priorities are filled. And um, I delegate everything else off. And that allows myself. And I believe anybody who does that more effectively, it's not about time managing. We all have the same amount of time. It's about managing the actions you do in the time you have. And if you if you don't take command of that, other stuff will fill up your day. Mm. I like it. And so if uh, there's a few things I'd love to to tell my boss, so I'm only doing these four things. How do we sort of get to the point where we know what our values are, and then we can work towards that? You know, prioritizing and you know picking the major things and not doing the minor things. Well, your life demonstrates your values, and uh, every decision you make is based on what you believe will give you the greatest advantage over disadvantage at any moment in time. And if you are unfulfilled in your career because what you're doing, you don't see helping you get what you really want, you'll eventually frustrate or burn out on it and eventually have enough frustration to say, you know what, I think I'll do my own thing and become an entrepreneur and start taking command of my time. But there's no reason why a person can't become more efficient. They just haven't probably taken the time to prioritize. And I, I didn't know about prioritization really until I turned 28. Right around my 28th birthday, right before it, I got a book called The Time Trap. And I realized that I was doing a whole lot of things that weren't producing for me. And I had to be honest with myself and admit that to myself. 
and then I gradually prioritized things according to what was most productive and meaningful. And then I slowly but surely, and I can't say it was immediate, but I slowly but surely gathered people around me that I could delegate things to. And it wasn't that long, really. Over a few years, I had it set up where I only do what I do best and stick to it and don't try to get outside my area of core competency and and let other people do what they love doing so they can't wait to do it and I can't wait to do what I do and we all move forward that way, build momentum that way. You know, for me personally, I'll probably know the things I value. I love reading. I love doing a certain amount of things. But at the same time, you've got a day-to-day job as well, which I also love, but I don't feel like I could get a full day of productivity still, even though I'm aware of what I enjoy doing and, and I could easily do that more, but for some reason I don't and uh, procrastination might seem to slip in. So how do I, you know, maximize my, uh, reduce my procrastination, do the things I value more? Well, you're not, when people are procrastinating, it's because they are having an anticipation that what's important, they think what's important is really not what's important. That's, that, it's usually an eye-opener. Um, I don't procrastinate on what I love doing, but I certainly procrastinate on things that aren't really important to me primarily because I, it's not important to me. So whenever somebody says I keep procrastinating, it means that you're doing something that's way more valuable to you instead. And we, but you may not be honoring that because it's really what's in line with your values. So if you love reading and you love summarizing literature and you love interviewing, then you want to do some planning and think, how can I maximize my income doing that so I can be doing that and get paid handsomely more than I could be doing what I'm doing now temporarily? And in the process of doing it, once you package it and do a little foresighting and planning and strategically structuring it, uh, you'll end up being actually ahead. You'll end up making more income, doing what you really love, that is inspiring, that makes a difference in more people's lives, and you've, you've got the formula now. But maybe initially, um, you may not have put the strategy in place to where you're certain I can now generate that same income. And you want the income because it gives you the freedom to do the things you want to do but you'd rather make the income doing what you love to do. So you just haven't packaged that yet. Once you do, you'll say goodbye to the other stuff and you'll get on with doing what's most meaningful. So I can encourage you to, to really meditate on what are all the action steps that I'm doing and how do I get handsomely paid to do that so I can structure it with, with a, a way of making the money. I had a gentleman that came to my the Swiss Hotel in Sydney, Australia about 12 years ago. And I said, what do you love doing? And, he said, I love reading books. I said, what do you do with them? He says, well, I summarize them and take notes and organize my notes. I said, and what do you do for an income? He said, well, I work as a salesperson. I said, how would you like to sell summary, book summaries? He goes, so what do you mean? I said, well, why don't you sell book summaries? Because there's executives out there that are very busy, and they don't have time to read the whole book. But if you did a really thorough job at summarizing it, they'd buy your summary. And then you could give them 10 books a week or 10 books a month or whatever it is, two books, three books a week or whatever, and, um, and save them an enormous amount. And they'd pay you for those book summaries if they're real, really well done. And he looked at me and he goes, I can do that. I've got it. I just need to edit it and clean it up. And I said, well, you have somebody that loves doing that or do you love editing? He says, well, I don't love editing, but I, yeah, I could, I could do that. So he put it together and um, I saw him about three months later and he had 40 clients buying his book summaries. I saw him one year later, he had 300 people buying his book summaries. 
I saw him three years later, and he had 2,000 people buying his book summaries. Then what he did is he started contacting the people that were writing the books. And he said, you know, I've now got a bit of a database. We'd like to know what it would cost to have you come and speak. And then I'd like to do an interview and put that to our database and encourage them to buy your book. And he says, and what I'll do is if you're, if you're not coming to Australia, I can't afford to cover your thing. But if you're coming to Australia, we'll do it. So she, he started contacting all the books he was reading, finding out who was coming into Australia, doing an, a live interview with him, and then package those live interviews to no, promote the books. And he found that there was a, a major business in it. So it took him three years to get $300,000 a year off book summaries. But within about a year, a little over a year, he was at over the 100000 mark with it. So it just a matter of time. But what was the biggest leverage was that he got to know all those book authors. Mm. He personally Massive. connected with them and got in their circles and then started doing interviews and then repackaging himself and rebuilt his brand through other people's brands. And all he did is he repackaged. He was doing this anyway, but he just wasn't packaging it where it was making him the money. But once he packaged it and made the money on it, he was like off and running. That's great, man. It's something we've got to think about. <laughs> I was thinking, is it is it possible for... Uh, do you think everybody has something like this where they it's something they love and it matches up with something that they can make a lot of money out of? Because I, I maybe this is just my you know hesitation that maybe there isn't you know not every passion could be monetized to that sort of level. Well, I don't. I th- my belief is that every passion, or I, I'd rather not call it passion because passion means to suffer. It's etymology. If you go look it up under passion dash etymology, it means to suffer. That's at root, pati, pasio. Um, I'd like to say not the passions, because those are the things that are ungoverned, uncontrolled suffering, but the inspired mission, the thing that inspires a person that could be a mission for them that they could dedicate their life to. I've yet to find one that can't be monetized. And, and, and it's the questions you ask. Many people ask the question, how can I go on this vacation and pay for it this year? I, I, I stopped asking that when I was 28. I started asking the question, how can I go on my vacation and get paid to do it? How can I make $100,000 to go on vacation this year? And I came up with ideas like that, and I started putting together trips on various locations and inviting my students to go, and then I would take them on tours and then also have an additional time for myself and my, my spouse. So I ended up making $100,000 to go on vacation. Instead of paying ten thousand, I now am making ninety extra thousand and going on vacation, a hundred thousand dollars on it. And and I was really amazed at what, because it was the question I asked: How do I get paid to do what I love instead of how do I afford to do what I love? And it makes a difference. So I, I'm convinced that no matter what it is, it's the way you package it, and how you think it through, and how you fill a need and serve people uh, by doing what you want to do. If you do it for your own narcissistic objective and you don't think of how you can serve people, then you won't make money out of it. But if you think, how can I actually serve people doing it? And you'd be surprised. You, if you package it in a way where it meets somebody's need, there's a way of getting paid to do just about anything. Mm. And I guess if we're, we could really think about how we can serve people, um, a lot of that's got to do with empathy. So how can we develop more uh, empathy in ourselves? Because I think... You know, for me, sometimes I feel like narcissism is like the almost the default at times. And, I, you know, everyone would love to be more empathetic and actually really want to help people more. Well, if you become narcissistic to extreme and you don't think about your customer, there's no business. 
And so the business floundering eventually erodes the fantasy of narcissism. And uh, eventually you bang your head against the wall and you realize that's not working. And then if you go to altruism and you sacrifice yourself and give away things, that doesn't work. And eventually that gets eroded until you find uh, what I call a sustainable fair exchange where you have equity between you and them. And uh, if you're proud and you're looking down on people or ashamed and looking up at people, you're not going to do well in business. But if you look across the people and realize that they have a set of values, you have a set of values, you want a sustainable fair exchange between what they want and what you want. If you care about people to meet that and you really care to find out what they're looking for and then package what you have in terms of that, then there's money to be made. There's no lack of money. I, I said at a church many times, at churches actually, uh, if you're impoverished, it's because you don't care about humanity. Because if you care about humanity, you're going to want to find out what their needs are and try to meet those needs directly or indirectly with your service or products or somebody else's. And you can get paid for bringing other people's products to them. It doesn't have to be your products. Mm. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? When you think that if you're impoverished, it's because you don't care about humanity. That's a serious punch in the face or a whack over the head. Oh, you know, it is a, because many level. people have a feeling like, oh, altruism is good. Mm. But altruism is foolish. Mm. Altruism by itself is, is self-depreciation, as Ian Rand says. It's a form of suicide. And, and narcissism is also a suicide because uh, neither one of them are lasting. They can't, you can't sustain it. But fair exchange works. When you're in a relationship, the only thing that's going to last is fair exchange. Absolutely. In any relationship, whether it be a spouse or a child or business or social, it's the only one that lasts. So if I'm in business and I get too narcissistic and I get proud and cocky and forget my customer and my employees, eventually I get humbled and I get brought down and, and it teaches you, that, hey, I'm not, I'm not caring about the customer enough and I'm not meeting their needs, so nothing's happening. And then I get humbled and if I go too far the other way, I go, hey, I'm working my butt off, I'm not making anything. I'm giving away things for free to get, to get business. And so eventually you find a fair exchange. Fair exchange is the only thing that's going to last. I've heard you talk about before about the, the needs at times to be a hero and the need to be a villain at sometimes as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how we might need actually be the villain and where it might be a positive thing in the world? Um, positive might not be the right word, but a, a, the right way to go would be to be the villain at, at certain times. Well, if I went to you, Adam, and I said, I said, you are always kind, never cruel, always positive, never negative. Always nice, never mean. Always generous, never stingy. Always thoughtful, never thoughtless. Always peaceful, never wrathful. And always, uh, you know, considerate, never inconsiderate. Would you believe me? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. Okay. If I said to you, you're always cruel, you're never kind. You're always mean, you're never nice. You're always taking, never giving. Always stingy, never generous. Yeah. Always <laughs> wrathful, never peaceful. Always negative, never positive. Always inconsiderate, never considerate. Would you believe me? No. But if I said to you, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're giving, sometimes you're taking, sometimes you're generous and stingy, and sometimes you're peaceful and wrathful, wouldn't you believe me? Yeah, I'd start to believe okay, so you can only have certainty when you see that you have both sides. And one side is typically the hero, saint, and virtue, and the other is the, the villain, sinner, virt, uh, you know, vice. And what's true is we have both. I, I, I'm amazed how many people subordinate to a social idealism of a one-sided outcome. And yet nobody lives by it. And everybody lives in hypocrisy. 
attempting to live by it. So I gave that up when I was 30. And I realized it was a wasted time, a futile effort to try to be one-sided. I was at a conference in London just the other day. And there was a guy trying to be one-sided. And his life was extremely volatile. He's attracting one calamity after another. And so I sat him down afterwards and I said, would you like to know why your life is so volatile? He goes, I think so. I said, because you're striving for a one-sided life. You suppress half of yourself and then express it, and then repress it, and then express it, and you're bipolar. And he said, well, I know, I've been labeled bipolar. I said, well, that's because you're striving. Bipolar is a, a byproduct of monopolar addiction, the addiction to one side. So I don't try to be a hero. I don't want to be a hero. I don't want to be put on a pedestal. I don't want to be labeled a success. I want to be labeled a man on a mission. And I'm going to do things. There's a spectrum of people on the planet, a whole spectrum of values. And there's a person over here that are pro-life and there's pro-borders. And there's pro-guns and there's anti-guns. And no matter, whatever path I take, if I do something, there's going to be some people that like it. And they're going to think, oh, that's great. They're going to have people that are dislike it. Oh, they think that's terrible. They're going to see me as a saint and a sinner and a virtue and a vice and a hero and a villain. And I'm just a man who chops wood and carries water, as they say. I'm just going to go down the path and be a man on a mission. I'm going to be labeled both sides. As Machiavelli says, I'm going to be the hero and the villain. And I don't have to get rid of half of myself to love myself. And I try to teach people how to love themselves for both sides because they're not going to get rid of it. Mm. No matter how hard you try, you're going to have both sides. And it's a waste of time. It's actually futile. And I proved that in a research project to try to be a one-sided person. So I, I, people think, well, kindness is good. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes you have to be pretty cruel. If I, I, I use the example when I'm getting on a flight and I go to the airline and I check in. And they say, Dr. Martini, uh, welcome to the elite uh, premier platinum status because you've gone 19 million miles. Thank you for the thing. And they treat me very nice. And then we have you in the club lounge and like to escort you to the club lounge and have first seat. Da, da, da. If they have everything organized for me like that, I'm a pretty nice guy. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Nice guy. But if all of a sudden I check in and they go, oh, sorry, well, we double booked. And yes, you may have 19 million miles, but somehow we've oversighted it. And maybe you can go on tomorrow. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll say, well, um, do you mind if we look again? <laughs> and, if, and if that doesn't work, we'll say, well, do you mind if um, we look again? And then they'll say, well, no, there's, well there's, there's no way I can get you on there. And it says, do you mind if I talk to the supervisor? And if the supervisor comes and says, well, there's nothing we can do. And I said, well, that's not going to cut it. And, and, and so I'm not always nice. I can, I can play tough ball. And sometimes my tough ball doesn't get anywhere. And sometimes it gets me my outcome. And so I need that at times. So I don't want to, you know, tell people to only be one-sided because sometimes you need the tough side. With your children, you have to be tough sometimes. You have to be able to, you know, be, play the, the tough, tough role. So I'm, I'm not, the, I, I don't have this idea that you're supposed to be a one-sided person. I just don't think that's a productive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like if you're just always on the light side, you, it comes at the cost of assertiveness and at times you, you need both. really need both. There's right? times when you, uh, there's a, an old ecclesiastic, um, Ecclesiastes thing in the Bible, the Old Testament, that said there's a time for peace, a time for war, a time for sowing, a time for reaping, a time for everything under the sun. I'm a believer that, that um, in order to love yourself, you've got to love all parts of yourself. You don't need to get rid of half of yourself. And the same thing for other people and life. If you expect life to be always peaceful and supportive and kind, you're not ready for life. 
Or if you imagine getting in a marriage and expect a one-sided marriage and only support and only praise and only kind and only sweet, you're not ready for marriage. You're holding on to an addictive, childish behavior. Mm. Yeah, this is right. great. I think we sort of we started at the, you know, we want to make a lot of money, but now we've got you know, deeper to the, the personal level about who we are on the inside. Is that sort of the, the starting well, ground for but all that's, of this But that's stuff? really what helps you set uh, economic because the only thing you can guarantee another human being to do is to make decisions according to what they value. If you don't care enough about the individual to make them equal to you, you will tend to think your values are right and theirs are wrong and you'll misinterpret their needs with subjective bias. But if you go and care enough about them to find out what their needs are and know they're going to make decisions according to their needs, not yours, then you'll have the accountability to make sure that you articulate your product, service, or ideas in terms of those needs or otherwise you're out of business. So you can't exaggerate you and minimize them and you can't minimize you and exaggerate them because you'll sacrifice your profits. You have to find that nature forces you into having them and you be equivalent if you want to sustain a business or sustain a life. Mm. And that brings you into balance and it brings them into balance. It brings you into equanimity, neither pride nor shame, but in the center where your heart is. And it brings you and them into equity, which allows neither infatuation nor resentment. Mm. So it's uh, we're on this kind of topic of personal development and and income, and I'm sure it links, and it's really positively correlated at times. Um, last week, I was at the bookshop, and quite interestingly, uh, I was looking for a book, and they said, it's stolen, and they said, all the books in this section get stolen, and ironically, it was the <laughs> personal finances uh, section of the whole bookshop. So, do you think at times, and probably anecdotally as well, sometimes if I've been to Tony Robbins and so forth, um, and I feel like anecdotally, the, the income of the people who go to the seminars is probably less than those of the outside population. So in what way um, do you think sometimes personal development doesn't have a positive correlation for pe- people's income? Well, uh, personal development could be in any of the areas of life. It could be a spiritual personal development, <clears throat> an intellectual one, a business one, a financial one, a family or relationship one, a social cause, or physical fitness. They're all under personal development. So the hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. So tell me what your values are, and I'll tell you what you're going to get out of a course. So um, I had a lady named Alicia, lovely lady, attended some of my programs. uh, But her highest value is learning. And so she spent probably 10,000 at least a year on courses for learning, at least 10,000. Now, she didn't build a business. She didn't have any value on business. Didn't have any value on making money. Just had a value on learning. So I told her one day, I said, I noticed that you're spending 10000 on seminars, but I don't see you building an entrepreneurial adventure. I don't see you actually doing much with it other than you're sharing it with people and you love learning. I said, do you have any desire at all to turn that into something that produces more than the cost or do you just want to just keep spending money and earning money doing something else and just keep learning? says, well, it'd be great, but I, I guess I don't have the value. I don't have a dream. I don't think and dream about a business. I, I, I have enough money for my, what I do. I love my education, and that's the values. So personal development is going to be value structured. So tell me what your values are, and I'll tell you what you get out of personal development. And I'll tell you probably the area of personal development you'll probably target. There's no rule saying, and there's no guarantee that you're going to personal development program, you're going to get wealthier. You have to have a value on wealth building and buying assets that accumulate in assets. 
Most people have a fantasy about being financially independent, but they don't have any actions that will ever lead them there. They don't have the values that will lead them there. So they have fantasies about being, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, but they don't have the actual values that will make them buy assets that will accumulate and actually have a passive income. And so people can go to seminars all day long and not necessarily be wealthy. So it depends on what their values are and depends on what the, what the education they're getting and what they actually do with it. That's a terrific answer. I'd like to delve a little bit deeper. So when you say values, what are we uh, talking about and is there any way we can shift our value structure to, to value val- this value more um, and then start building up our asset column and so forth and yes. building wealth? I get, I get paid many times for people who have the fantasy of financial independence but they have no history of ever getting there. And I, we look and do a value determination process. We look at how they fill their space, how they spend their time, what they're energized by, what they spend their money on, what do they think about, visualize, affirm, uh, what they talk to other people about, what they're inspired by, what their goals are, and what they like learning about. And then we determine what their values are. We find out that wealth building isn't even on the list. But they have a fantasy. A lot of people have fantasies, but they don't have it on the list. And the hierarchy of their values dictates their financial destiny. So if you have a very high value on education, whether the second you get extra money, you're going to put it on it and put it in a seminar. If you have a high value on on clothes, you're going to go buy your clothes. If you have a high value on travel, you're going to go travel. So just because you go to personal development doesn't mean you're going to get wealthy. You have to have the values to do it because money circulates through the economy from those who value it least to those who value it most. And when you have a value on it, when you get the money, you only want to put it into something that goes up in value. So you want to buy an asset. And if you don't have a value on it, you'll put it into something that goes down in value, a liability or a, a consumable item. And most people buy consumable items and then have no money left over to, to save and invest. And so they can't get ahead. They're a slave to money all their life and never have a mastery over it. So what we can do is we can take the values, first determine what their values are, see if money is even on the list. If it's not, we can put it on the list or we can raise it on the list by stacking up the advantages of doing the action steps that have proven to build wealth. There are, there are clues, and, and if you look at what are the action steps that wealthy people do, and you now have a higher value on doing those action steps, you increase the probability of that having now an impact. So I have what I call the six steps to wealth that are the six common things I found in wealthy people. And if you stack up enough benefits out of doing those, enough until you see your change in behavior, if you're, if you're making a benefit, you're not seeing a change of behavior, then the benefits you're actually riding aren't real benefits to your mind. But once you see enough benefits, when the why is big enough, the hows will take care of themselves. You'll take action and you'll shift your values. I've had many people that have never been able to get ahead financially, just frustrated. And we do a shift in values. And over the next six months, they're starting to accumulate some money finally. First time in their life. They see opportunities. They're taking advantage of opportunities. They're not blowing it on depreciables. And they're starting to buy things, and they now know what an asset is. Most people don't even know what an asset is. Something puts money in your pocket instead of taking it out of their pocket. They don't know that. So they keep buying stuff, thinking that it's going to it's going to miraculously come out of nowhere. So, yeah, you can shift your values. I can raise them or lower them, or I can restructure the values. I do it in my Breakthrough Experience program for help people do that. Definitely. I might be sold to <laughs> jump in on that. <laughs> and yep. uh, what kind of – um so the – Money was one value. Uh, learning can be a positive value. What do you think is, a, a, you know, if you had a good cocktail of certain values, what do you think is a good mix? There's no right values. The world needs every value. 
You need somebody out there dedicated to raising beautiful children and being home and being there with, as a mother. You need some people that are out there social causing politicians. I just got through sitting with a whole room of mm-hmm. politicians this last week, last couple of days. And um, they're social causes. And you got others that are business oriented. You got others that are fitness oriented. You got others that are metaphysically, spiritually oriented. Every value system is needed in society. Mm-hmm. There's no right values. But if you expect, uh, if you're a cat, you're expecting to swim, or if you're a fish expecting to climb, you're going to beat yourself up because you don't have the values to match your expectations. So people that don't have a value on wealth building, if they've set up an expectation, I want to be wealthy, that's not going to happen mm-hmm. unless they shift their values. You either got to set goals that match your values or shift your values to match goals if you want fulfillment and congruency. So there's no right so I don't want to say this is the one you should have. It depends on you as an individual. I'd rather find out what your values are, show you how your life is being reflecting of that, then decide if there's a shift in that, then we can shift the values, or we can shift your attitude and quit setting goals that aren't matching your values. Because that's what most people do. They compare themselves to others. They think, oh, I should be more mm-hmm. like that. They don't have the values that those other people have. Then they beat themselves up thinking, why don't I get where these people got? You don't have the values. Mm-hmm. You're making decisions based on your values, not their values. Mm. I think there's a good Einstein quote in there. You know, if you judge a, a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it's going to go through its life thinking it's stupid. So if you if you think, oh, I wish I could climb this tree, you've got this fantasy, but you're a fish, then uh, it's not going to work out for well, you. Well, it's your values exactly that you determine who you are. Tell me what your highest value is, and I'll tell you what your identity wraps around. Mm. I like my, my highest value is teaching. Mm. I'm a teacher. But I, I've met women that have a highest value in raising kids. They're a mother. The, the lady I was with, an ambassador or not ambassador, the prime minister the other day, and uh, her highest value was her country. And it, it, she is perfect for that job. I mean, that's her, she is, everything she said out of her mouth was about the country. She was focused on the people, the people, the people, the people. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we, uh, we always like to ask the people we interview, uh, what, are your, what are either your favorite books or what books have had the biggest impact on you? And I, I believe you've read a lot of books, so it might be a tough choice. Well, I have read a few. Um, the ones that I ask people to consider reading is Syntopican Volumes 1 and 2 by Mortimer Adler. And what it is is a summary of the greatest ideas by the greatest minds in the Western world over the last 2,700 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's a summary. That's... And it's really well done by Mortimer Adler. It's part of the great books of the Western world, the great idea series by Britannica. But it's the two first volumes, Syntopican's Volume 1 and 2. S-Y-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N, Volumes 1 and 2. It's a real PhD on life, those two books. Amazing. I've actually never heard of it. I've heard the author who wrote the book, How to Read a Book, by Mortimer Adler. Um, but that sounds like a, that sounds like a, a worthwhile this read. This is a good, good read. It literally starts on, on the most important topics that man has questioned and wanted to know. It, it covers about 80 of the most important topics that we could know. And it's a great summary. It's a, it's a PhD in life. Um, so I'd like to just ask uh, just one more question as we approach the end. You, you were obviously on the, the documentary Law of Attraction, um, and which is a really popular documentary. Not necessarily the Law, law of Attraction, but do you, are you of the opinion that there are some metaphys- metaphysical laws out there that actually govern the world that aren't um, in scientific literature, so to speak, but we can actually uh, utilize for everyday life? Um, I don't know if we... There, there's an exploration of metaphysics 
that has been going on for centuries. And then there's also physics. And most people, when they think of the laws of nature, the universal laws, they're dealing with those things that are eponymous, uh, something like the L Newton's law of gravity or um, Maxwell's four partial differential equations for, for electromagnetism or possibly a uh, uh, law dealing with uh, Max Planck on the, the universal constant of Planck's constant. These, these principles, I think, are universal, but they also have metaphysical implications. So at the junction of what we know is physics, and outside what we know is the junction of metaphysics. And we have to always be on the verge of asking metaphysical questions to try to solve the next mystery. You know, mm. because what we know is history. What we don't know is mystery. And, and the junction of those is physics to metaphysics or uh, speculative theory, theory versus practical. So I'm a firm believer that there's, there are laws out there, but we can't really call them laws, universal laws, until they're reproducible, they're applicable on all scales. Uh, even the universal law of the strong nuclear force to deal with gluons and quarks uh, this is occurring universally. Wherever we see atoms, the nuclei, the hadrons and nucleons are, are, are filled with these up and down quarks and strange quarks and top quarks and bottom quarks and things. And this law seems to be universal everywhere. So that's a physics law, but it has metaphysical implications because it could be now with its relationship to the weak nuclear force and to entanglement, which is an interesting phenomenon since 1935, they could have metaphysical implications, but they're still physical laws. So the boundary of the physical universal laws are really universal laws that we, we can confirm. Outside that, we have things that we're still speculating on and we haven't confirmed it yet, and it's working laws. And there are metaphysical principles that we might apply until we've narrowed it down. And things that we once thought were metaphysical, we eventually come and make closure and we got an answer to it. And we now solve it. And we didn't know why, why the planets were revolving around the sun. And then we finally figured out from Kepler and Tycho Brahe and, and, uh, and Newton, we, we figured it out. Then Einstein put his equation on it and distorted the fabric of space-time to deal with gravity pushing instead of pulling of Newton. And we started adding to it. And so those laws become more generalized and more refined as they go along. But they have many metaphysical implications. So mm. I think you need both. Yeah, great. I'd like to maybe just um, dig a little bit deeper on one of them. I, I, I guess if you're saying entanglement or strong nuclear forces, um, I guess take your pick of any of those and then how it actually um, manifests itself in the you know in, in the day-to-day -day world and the, you know, the maybe cultural level. Well, I'll use entanglement because that's probably the most easier one to see. Uh, entanglement was first observed in 1935. At least that's, no, no I'm gonna go back. Heraclitus, who was a Greek pre-Socratic philosopher who wrote in the sixth century BC, said that all complementary opposites come together, emerge together, submerge together, and they work together and you can't separate them. And that the universe is made out of complementary opposites. And that they are as inseparable regardless of where they are in space time, okay? We now fast forward to 1935. This is 2,500 years later, okay? And um, no, 4,000, no, yeah, 2,500 years later. Yes. Now, now all of a sudden we have entanglement emerge. Well, this is a basic law of Heraclitus. 
put into a real application. Initially, it was thought to only occur in the quantum world at the smallest range of Planck's length, 1 times 10 negative 33rd centimeters, anything from a nuclei of an atom down. But then they found out that these things occur maybe in larger systems. And that was debated and debated and debated all the way to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s. But now we know that inside the, the neuroassociative complexes can be entangled with other neuroassociative complexes in the brain. Now we know that inside the, the centrioles and the, the nuclei of the, 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 the center of the poles of mitotic divisions and cells, now it looks like there's entanglement going on. Now it looks like the law of heuristic escalation in sociology is, a, is really an entanglement. Now we look at, at the quantum vacuum um, and the energies that are maybe involved in inflationary models in cosmology are now entangled. We're finding its application. And there's a theory, even by John Archibald Wheeler at, at Institute of Advanced Studies and also at University of Texas, that maybe the universe is entangled. Everything in the universe is entangled. And maybe the people who we have an interaction with, we have an entanglement relationship. In my Breakthrough Experience program, which I do every week, um, I show evidence of an entanglement going on in human psychology. So, But those are things that aren't absolute sciences yet. They're, they're on the verge of it. So they're kind of in the metaphysical speculation right now. But they're, I'm, I feel quite certain that they're going to be closed in the next decade or so. It's going to be narrowed down and some of these things are going to be confirmed. Yeah. That's super exciting. That was way above my head. <laughs> but that sounded awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As, as we finish up now, where can uh, people find out more about you? Where can they learn uh, some of the things that you, that you teach? Well, I'm, I, if they go on my website, drdmartini.com, D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. Um, they go on events. They'll find out where I am in the world. Uh, but there's also an educational experience on my website. There are thousands of articles, thousands of interviews. Um, there's online products. There's live offline products, you know, CDs, DVDs, books, things. There's, there's, you could spend probably the rest of your life on my website <laughs> <laughs> and, and continue yeah. to learn because I'm, I'm doing a thousand new interviews a year. So there's, there's wow. new stuff coming in all the time. You could keep busy. And I've had people that, that watch YouTube videos of ours all the time. Hmm. So they could just go online and find out what I'm doing and where I'm going. We have live webinars, podcasts, blogs, yeah. all the things that's being used today. Absolutely. So that's the best way to get a hold of where I am at. That's and it seems um, very likely that you'll probably be hitting everyone's city at some stage. You mean your travel? Yeah, I've been to 2,034 cities now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so you'll be coming to a city. <laughs> and there's still many more to go, but yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I love traveling and I love teaching and researching and I do it every day. Yeah. And that's what I love doing. So. Fantastic. Thanks so much. It was great to chat. Great to meet you.